0: So, a uh, little series, first series I've gotten to do in a couple years, uh, <clears throat> and uh, prayed about it for a long time, and just the idea that Thanksgiving was coming, and, and how just God's put on my heart that I think he's calling us to be a more grateful people, and so I hope that Thanksgiving is sort of a slingshot for us, that it, that it, it reminds us throughout the rest of the year to not just be grateful, but to express our gratitude to one another. You know, there's a couple of guys in this church I meet with every week. And sometimes it's really fun and encouraging. And sometimes it's a beating, right? Sometimes what I need is to be challenged or disciplined or put in my place or humbled or whatever. And, and so we have this accountability group. And then there's the leadership team here where we sit down and, and go through sometimes hours of, of business and vision and encouraging one another. And um, so that little small group of, of guys in this church... I cannot tell you how grateful I am to you guys. Uh, And one of them the other day, Andrew, one of them the other day was saying, hey, so tell me what's going on in your life. And I was like, well, you know, on one hand, I got to just tell you, like the most important stuff, my family relationships, I just feel really, really good right now, and that's amazing. I'm so excited about just where we are as a family. I said, but on the other hand, you know, health-wise, I'm just so lazy. Gosh, I hate working out. I used to love to work out when I played violent sports, right? Because you got to like work out so you can throw people to the ground and that kind of stuff. I don't do that anymore, and so like going to the gym is just like, ugh, it's just, I hate it now. And so this guy's friend, who's here at the church, he's just like, well, listen, uh, I do my own workout, but I'll stop doing my workout and I'll meet you at the gym, you know, four mornings a week, just to disciple you in that area. And I was just like, so touched by, you know, it's not just the words love, right? You know, we talk about it in the church that love is more than just what we say to each other. It's more than just a feeling. It's more than just an emotion. Love is an action. It's a its a verb. It's a commitment, right? And I just, I've never been in a church in my life where I've felt more real love swirling around, more real commitment to the brethren, you know, people having people in their homes constantly in this church. Um, it's just incredible. And so if you're brand new, you're invited to be a part of that. It may take you a minute or two to figure out you know, who's got the best food or whatever, but there's there's places to go where you can be loved on and fellowship and we have a game night and uh, there's people in this church that do hikes and bikes and, you know, cookie exchanges. That excites me quite a bit. I mean, there's a lot of different things going on here, but what makes it all possible is what we have in common. And I think that the apex, the the crux, if you'll pardon the pun, is the cross that we meet at the cross. We fellowship on this incredible level ground at the foot of the cross. Jesus beckons us to himself from the cross. He cries out, it is finished from the cross. I love it is finished. Anybody know the the, the ancient Aramaic term, right? It, I know my son loves this, the tetelestai. I always thought if my oldest son Hudson was going to be in a band, he, he should call it tetelestai. <laughs> you know, Jesus is pouring out his blood and his spirit is departing and his father in heaven is literally rejecting the sin, our sin on his son. He's turning his back away from the brutal side of, of Jesus becoming our guilt. And Christ cries out from the cross, Elohim, Elohim, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Any Jew with an earshot of that would have known that he was quoting Psalm 22. As a matter of fact, in those days, they didn't call it Psalm 22. They called it Elohim, Elohim. And when he cried out those words, I believe people who had been poking around and And sniffing out Jesus and trying to figure out who he really was and following him to some degree. I believe that some of the Jews who were at that scene when he was on the cross, innocent and on the cross, paying for our sins, When he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I believe that at that moment, several people who knew the word of God were like, (laughs) this is real. My goal for the last few weeks has been threefold. One is to build you up. To really uh, add something from God's Word to what you believe. That's what it's all about. That is the hokey pokey. <laughs> that is what it is all about. It is what you believe. Our work as Christians is to constantly repent and believe. We get off the course and we start doing our own thing. We start going the way of self on the broad way of destruction. All Christians do this. We either lean towards the law we start trying to please God by our good behavior. That, that's just as sinful as license, where we just blow it off and start you know, behaving rottenly because of grace. Those are both naughty things. right? And this road, this narrow path of grace is very, very difficult to stay on. And that's why we need each other to iron sharpen iron, to be in real discipleship and accountability with each other. And so Jesus stands behind us, I believe, as his children, the, those of us who believe in him, and he calls us by name. And so I get off on some stupid, selfish tangent. I have some tantrum. I overreact or I overeat or I s- strive to satisfy myself with something besides him, right? I take something that doesn't belong to me. All of these sins I'm listing, I'm just saying me, but you know, I'm, it's us, right? We're all pretty jacked up people. And we get off course and we just start doing our own thing, we start to stagger a little. And our Savior, our hero, the lover of our soul cries out from behind us. He says, Turn back around. Turn your heart back towards me. And I don't really, I don't hear that as an angry voice. I hear that full of compassion. Absolute desire for us. I believe that he desires you. That Jesus desires to be with you. Not just not just with you in a crowd, but he says, I want to be alone with you. I want you to go into a place where it's just private and where you and I can have just this time of truth and, and honest, you know, just discourse. And he calls us to that. I believe every day. And so that when we say our job is to repent and believe, this is what we're talking about. If, if standing behind this silly object was the ideal Christian walk, obviously a bad illustration, but let's just say this represented you know the formula of what it means to really walk with Christ. And then every day we either go off towards the law and start being little Pharisees and trying to impose our own junk on other people and, and try to prove how good we are. That is sin or we go towards license and we just blow it off and decide we're just going to impose on grace and, and be naughty, be rotten, selfish. that is sin. And on either one of those paths, Christ from the truth, from the middle, from the cross, calls us back. That is what we mean to repent and believe. He calls us to turn our heart back towards Him, the truth, truth with a capital T, personified truth, wisdom of eternity, the living word. He calls us to turn our hearts back to Him by faith and just start moving in His direction again, to repent and believe is more than just an intellectual assertion that Jesus is correct. It is a relational action. Imagine you as a parent and your child starts to go off towards a dangerous place. They're running down the driveway and the ball goes into the street and you're like, Jimmy, Jimmy, Jimmy! And as a parent, when your child is running towards that potential danger, you're not angry at the child, are you? No, out of love and compassion and concern for your offspring you cry out to them in hopes that what that they turn around and what jesus wants is for his very words for his calling to rescue us every day is that good news (laughs) my friends that is the gospel and here's the problem with so many evangelical churches we look at this timeline of oh yeah I received the gospel it was during summer camp in 6th grade or it was when I was 19 and in the navy or you know my spouse brought me to church in our early 30s and she came from a christian family but then I got saved and and we always talk about our salvation as though it's in the past tense this is not good theology my friends because every day we either go to the left or to the right when god has called us down the straight and the narrow and he calls us like a good parent who wants to rescue us from going into the street. And he says to us, turn around. Just turn around. Just repent and believe. And my image of this is tied into the cross. I just believe that from the cross, when he said it is finished, that the more we would understand that ministry of finality from the cross, the the greater ability, the maturing process in each of our hearts would begin to resonate more, we would have a a, a higher propensity to repent and believe on a daily basis. Here's the sad part about the good news. A lot of people, even after just what I said, can't intellectually jump to the point where they realize they need the gospel every day. They still, there's people sitting here going... Look, you know, I'm, I'm not asking you to raise your hand, but I'm asking you to repent and believe that it's every day, every day. My greatest evidence for this, and then we're going to go into four questions about the cross in our life. My greatest evidence of this, um, you guys know that verse in Philippians where it talks about the workmanship of God and how we are his workmanship created, Right? And then there's that great, encouraging, incredible verse that they've turned into sort of a 70s disco song. He will be faithful to complete it. right? So it's like, hey, have some hope. Whatever God started in you, you are his workmanship, and he will be faithful to complete it. That's just his character, amen? He got, our father doesn't start stuff he doesn't finish. And so we are all in this incredible process where daily he wants us to believe the good news and repent and believe. Daily he wants us to believe in his voice and turn away from whatever danger we're ambling towards and and embrace him daily he wants us to reflect on the cross and what it means when his son said it is finished but i love this cross reference over in philippians when paul starts to talk about how we are his workmanship his crafty work his handiwork and it just seems like all men even lots of preachers and preachers with way more education than me they misread this in a construction format why because that is so macho. I saw a guy walking around the church this morning with two hammers. And I thought, that's so cool. Because that's just, you know, Ooh, we are men. You know, we think, construction. We are God's construction project. You know, like he's got a big hard hat on, you know. Some of us just, you know that's our heart down there. He's just jackhammering it because we're just so hard. And... But the word workmanship is actually literary. The, word, the Greek word is poema. It's the same word we get the idea of poetry from. And so if you, if you just take it as literature, what, what Paul is saying about this process, of constantly calling us back into a firm, centered, prioritized relationship with Jesus every day, is Paul is saying that your life is like a poem. And the author of that poem is your father. And he hasn't finished the story yet. And he will be faithful to complete our story. I'm pretty moved by that. The cross being the central, literal timepiece of the earth. It is the, the literal stake in the ground whereby all things are measured. I mean, only recently did I hear professors start saying something besides A.D. and B.C., right? Now they call it, like, the common era or some other baloney. And, I mean, if you're into that, I'm not putting you down. I just think it's weird. For 2,000 years, it was A.D. and B.C., and now it's something else. The reason they changed it is because they they realized, hey, we people who say we don't even believe in a God are, are measuring everything by the life of Christ. How funny is that? And so they've, they've shucked that off now, and that's not a huge problem. Point except for to say that that the world is very aware of this dynamic and, and yet sometimes i think we who live in the light are sort of dozing off in the light right we're asleep in the light and i feel like the cross calls us to wake up it is a clarion call for us to be sober to be ready to to prepare our hearts to have a plan in advance to respond to the things that are going to happen around us recently a friend of mine said if the currency goes crazy, do you have enough for your family to live on? I said, yeah, you know, maybe for a month. We've got some coins laying around. We could buy some bread or whatever. If the dollar was worthless tomorrow, you know, we, we got enough for us for a little while. And this other older pastor friend of mine said, uh, well, what about your church? I was like, wow, that's heavy. And so there's there's a group of people right now who are making plans to have actual resources for the this church if our currency goes away why i'm not some freaky what are those people called the i mean i'm not saying it's gonna happen this week it may never happen i don't care but what if it did wouldn't it be great if there were a handful of people who for the church were ready for that it is a plan in case it is a preparation of of character if we don't need it hallelujah but Christ every day calls us to this idea of being ready, being sober, being alert, being prepared. And from the cross, he makes it very clear that he's done all of the handiwork necessary for that. The, the last little theological thing I want to talk about is this idea of double imputation. That on the cross for us Christians, those of us who believe that the blood of Jesus shed on the cross is what redeems us back from our own sinfulness. And that is the truth. The double imputation is this thing, um, I read about it in Spurgeon, I'm sure he didn't make it up, but I got it from Charles Spurgeon, and it's the idea that all of our sin, our filth, our shame, our actual guilt, and its consequence for eternity were imputed to Christ and he was somehow, as the perfect lamb of God, the sacrifice slain before the foundation of the earth, he was somehow able to receive that imputation on our behalf. All of our dirt was deposited in Christ, in character, in reality, in the spiritual, real world. Our sin was imputed to Christ so that he literally had, possessed, was responsible for all of our guilt. All at once. And then somehow all of his righteousness, his rightness with God, his purity, and his actual perfection on a spiritual level, were then, regardless of time, right, outside of our ability to observe science, across centuries, that his righteousness was imputed to the adopted children of God who later, by faith, would cry out to Christ for salvation. Don't ask me how that works. (laughs) I trust that Charles Spurgeon had that figured out before he died. I just know that when I read about that, my heart leapt for joy. And as I've studied it, i found nothing that contradicts that in Scripture. And that it is though when God looks down and he sees one of his children because of the cross. There's a Scripture where the the guy says, but what about my sin? And God says, your sin was separated from me as far as the east as from the west. What does he say? He's like, what sin? God looks down and what he sees is the blood of Jesus over those who by faith have accepted his son for their salvation. Hallelujah. So there's there's four questions from the cross. And these are all from what might appear to be somewhat random scriptures. But in Mark chapter 8, verse 34, I wanted to start with friendship here. Jesus said... uh, Well, it says, when he called the crowd to him along with his disciples, his best friends, and he said, whoever wants to be my disciple, not just the student in the classroom who goes home at the end of the day, but the one that wants to live with me, the one that wants to follow me down my path, camping buddies, (laughs) discipleship is a -a 24-hour-a-day occupation, whoever wants to be consumed by my kingdom, whoever wants to be my close friends, The ones who want to have me abide in them. The ones who want to live in me. That's a disciple. It's heavy. It isn't like just a prayer of repentance. It is a lifestyle of choosing Christ. It's more than being a student. It's it's where you camp out in your soul, in your emotions, and in your intellect. It's what it's what Jesus meant when he said, put my kingdom first. I want, I want my kingdom to be so high of a priority. I want you to love me so much that it looks like you hate your family, even your wife and your parents. Like, does he want me to hate my wife? No. He just wants my love for him to have no compare. So that's the picture of discipleship. It's an effort. It isn't just an action that happened in the past. It is a day-to-day repent and believe. He said, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves... And take up their cross and follow me. Now, he hadn't died on the cross, but all of those people he was speaking to had seen other people die on a cross. Rome was notoriously nasty toward the people that they didn't like. And they didn't have to not like you very much to do something really nasty with you. And so it was very common in the days of of our Savior's earthly ministry for people to be nailed to a cross. And I think that what Jesus asks us in juxtaposition of the eternity of the cross with this verse, before his own crucifixion, he's like, if you want to follow me, you have to identify with this death. It's not just the death that they impose on you. I want you to volunteer for it. What is he saying? He's saying, I, I want my followers to be like me. Jesus was essentially prophesying here what his end would be, he constantly tried to explain to his disciples that their version of what was going to happen wasn't really going to happen. Like, they still thought he was going to come in as the Messiah and rout out the Roman government and set up, you know, camp and kingdom right there and, like, reign forever from Jerusalem starting then. And and they just didn't understand all those Isaiah passages about the suffering servant and what it meant that he needed to set up his kingdom through sacrifice as a lamb, so that when he returns like a lion, right, he captures all of the glory that is required for him. So, the question, question number one, there's four questions about the cross that it's not, I'm not asking you this. I want you to ask you. And we, in fact, after every question, I think we need to pause for a second or two and just pray so that you as an individual can say, Lord, where am I on this spectrum? So, based on what Christ prophesies about his own crucifixion and how he calls us to live a life modeled after his vision here's the question self or sacrifice if we live for ourselves on this one end of the spectrum and we'll call that zero and if if we live an ultimate sacrificial life we would call that a hundred I don't want to be the one that grades you and frankly you don't know me well enough to grade me maybe Margaret does I'd let Margaret give me an honest assessment But even the guys I meet with now for, you know, an hour or two a week, it would be a long time before I would trust their assessment of where I am on the spectrum. This is between you and God. You ask yourself this question and ask God to reveal to you where you are according to the cross. Are you a person that lives for yourself, to serve yourself? Or are you a person who's embraced the calling of Christ to pick up your cross daily and live sacrificially? This alone could be the entire sermon, but there's three other questions. So let's take a minute and just pray. Ask the Lord to reveal to you what changes he would ask you to make by faith today based on the spectrum of self to sacrifice. Lord, I know some of us couldn't even pray right now sort of a shocking question (laughs) so I just want to pray for everyone including myself that we would be humble and more than just students but that we would passionately desire to apply your word to our lives we have some idea what you mean by a living sacrifice by taking up our cross and following you and that you want it to be daily Lord we honestly don't always know exactly how to do that and we honestly don't always want to do that and so, help us to grow in Christ and move away from the self and move towards the sacrificial life. Lord, I'm asking you with every fiber of my being right now that you would help me be less selfish and more sacrificial. It is so unnatural for us, and yet you have called us to the supernatural life. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Colossians, Colossians chapter 1, three verses, one question. Colossians chapter 1, starting in verse 19, says, For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him. Now, if it was just Jesus, the Spirit God, that would be way less mysterious. But because Jesus was fully a man and fully God, man, there's some heavy mystery in that. And I, there's nothing more annoying in the world to me than someone who can answer the questions that this provokes. I don't believe it was ever God's intention on this side of the resurrection for us to fully grasp all that it means that Jesus was fully man and fully God. But He does call us by faith to walk in that and to believe that. For God was pleased to have all His fullness dwell in Him, Christ, and through Him, Christ, to reconcile Himself, God the Father, to Himself all things. So the Father sent Jesus to reconcile everything to Him. You know that verse that says that the world itself is crying out as with birth pangs? That our planet, you know, can you just hear the creaking in our planet right now? You know, I'm not like on a Greenpeace raft or anything trying to get everyone to, like, you know, recycle everything in there. You know, I, I accidentally throw out a water bottle in the trash and I don't go dumpster dive and move it. You know, I'm not super freaky green. And yet, on the other hand, I would say that that we've been given a stewardship of our resources, and collectively, humanity hasn't done the greatest job. And so my question is, as the church, I don't want to get off course and, and lead anyone into, like, you know, Earth Day activism. But what if, on Earth Day, we pledged to be better stewards while also sharing the gospel at the Earth Day parade? Does that make sense? So, we could have credibility by saying, Yeah, we agree that even though we consider this God's creation and you consider it a big cosmic accident, we do agree on one thing. We should take better care of our planet. And so, our hippie, you know, the, 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 you know who I'm talking about. Our neighbors, who we love, amen, would say, Wow, that's amazing that a church would come out here and, and care about this with us. And we could have some common ground, we could agree on stewardship. But then we'd be remiss if we didn't also say, you know, have you heard the four spiritual laws? <laughs> God has a plan for your life. Do you have a few minutes to have an awkward conversation? <laughs> in the Middle East, that is my favorite line, by the way. Hey, could we have a little, a little awkward conversation? And like in translation is where that's beautiful. And the guy's like, Sure. To reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior. Uh, I love to talk about Shalom, the Hebrew version of peace, but really... Here in Colise, what they would have probably thought about when they read this letter to their church is the, uh, the uh, help me, brothers. is it Latin or Greek? Pax? Is that Latin? Thank you. Whew. It's good to have someone up here that can, it's like having a hitting coach on a baseball team. Pax Romana, you know, the, you're familiar with that? It's really interesting. There's a little bit of a side trail, but I think you need to hear this, uh, and, I, and I need to hear it too, that um, when the legions, when the Roman military... Would decide they wanted to go and, and conquer a, a new section of land. You know, just imagine some part of the Germanic, you know, barbaric tribe land. They go, hey, we want that little edge of the mountain range over there. The first thing they would actually do is they would send an envoy. They send a few guys out on horseback, and they'd go out with a translator, probably someone they'd captured from their last victory, and they would offer Pax Romana. Pax Romana. P A X. I don't know if I'm pronouncing it right. I'm not a Latin scholar. But in Texas, it's patro manna. And they would say, we'll give you the peace of Rome. Or we'll destroy you. You're picked. <laughs> right? So if you just let us come in, we'll give you our language, our culture, our education, our legal system, our protection. And you'll have literal peace if you'll just submit to us. But if you don't submit to us, we're going to unleash hell. Now it's really interesting you know what that little ambassador, the guy that represented the emperor who went to the new uncharted territory for Roman Empire, you know what that guy was called for the, for the emperor? An apostle. So like when these guys were running around talking about being apostles, the people in the Roman world knew what that meant. An apostle was a guy who rode out from the empire to offer peace or fire. Is that interesting? Because the good news is that if you believe in Jesus, if you believe in the, the story of the cross of eternity, that was not spontaneous. It wasn't like in the 30 years of his life. They were like, hey, now we've got a plan. The Bible very clear. This plan went into action to redeem us before Adam ate the fruit in the garden. Before the foundation of the world, the Lamb of God was already set aside as though slain. And he sends us with the good news to our neighbors and to our community and to our world and to the nations. And what is it exactly we tell them? Hey, we can give you something that will bring peace and protection. And not just here on earth, but eternally. But if you turn your back on this offer, what is it we tell them happens? I mean, if we're telling them the whole truth. Like if we don't water it down, if we're not ashamed of the gospel, if we tell people the whole truth, we tell them that they can either accept the offer that that God the Father made by allowing His Son to be sacrificed on the cross where all of our sin gets imparted to Him and all of His righteousness gets given to us as a free gift by faith. Not of our good works, lest any man should boast. Amen? But if they say no, what is it we tell them happens next? That fire. So the second question is this. And don't take this wrong. Don't externalize this like, like you're the apostle going to the barbarians with this proposition. You're the barbarian land. <laughs> the, the gospel comes to you through the Holy Spirit and through a messenger. And this is what I believe the cross begs us to deal with. And we're going to take a moment to pray about this. But in our own heart, war or peace? Peace. Uh, this is a very this is the most personal point to me. Most of my Christian walk has been more war than peace. I have been a volcanic tumult of emotion. I say like a, a socially handicapped or you know an emotional volcano. I, I defend myself or whatever you know beg people to forgive me all the time for my weepiness and my you know over emotional reaction but that isn't like we woke up one day and chose to be psychos and i'm saying we because i already know some of you and then there's that other yeah thank you for waving your hand back there and then there's that other pendulum the robots right the we will not shed a tear we will react entirely stoically to everything with no emotion just as bad i've lived with both people it's hard So instead of denying it, I believe God's calling us through the cross to deal with it, to constantly deal with it, to seek peace, to accept his peace in our life. You know, we talk about all this accountability in the groups, and those things are great. But years ago, when my wife noticed that I was having a, a season of just flare, like she can tell because she sees my neck get red, you know. And I would just be like white knuckling, you know, like, you know, something. And, and my wife for a long season would lean forward and say, be gentle, the Lord is near. And just that one little scripture would just bring me down where I needed to be. Just one little verse by faith, an encouragement from a friend, from a partner. One little prayer whispered changed everything. But in those years, what God was trying to teach me was to learn how to say that same truth to myself. Man, I got to tell you, I've had, you know, God, the Bible, a great wife and coach, good friends. I'm still struggling with this. I don't know about you. I meet with a lot of people in the ministry, and and for years I had a congregation. I was a senior pastor, and I dealt with all kinds of marital issues and stuff and, and other issues, and uh, now I do the same job but, but with pastors. I meet with pastors and missionaries constantly. And you know what? The problems are the exact same. Do you believe that God wants to bring peace into your heart, into your life, into your spirit? Where are you on that spectrum? If, if there's always a volcano or always a coldness, it's the left and right again, right? It's the same damaging thing. If you're totally aloof or you lose your temper, it's the same damaging thing. What God calls us to is to be useful to his kingdom, which requires us to have a measure of his peace. And it doesn't just magically come. It requires relationships where people will whisper the truth into your ear at a time of decision. It requires transparency and accountability. So when I say peace or war, I'm not asking... What is your preference? Gosh, I hope you prefer peace. I'm asking, where is your commitment? Do you have a person in your life or would you be willing to ask people in your life to speak into your life? The next verse, 1 Peter chapter 2. There's only two more questions. 1 Peter chapter 2 just verse 24, says, He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. Whoa, that is a can of worms. But I'm not afraid to talk about that. Let me tell you why. Even though I can't exactly say how this applies to every illness, I do know that it can apply. We had a, a young man in our church uh, on the other side of town. He was a Marine from somewhere back south, Bible Belt guy. Kind of a, what I call a closet charismatic. For some reason, he liked to fellowship with we, you know, Baptist folks, but he was that guy in the front row, you know, woo, you know and uh, had exuberantly expressed some of the gifts that we often don't hear. And so he made some people nervous, but I liked him. And every time we would go out and do evangelism, which in those days, believe it or not, we had 30 people every Thursday night go out and share Christ. <laughs> that would be so cool to go back to that someday. And he was—he never missed it. This guy led people to Christ constantly. So he had my heart. He had my attention. Um, one day he came to me and he said, listen, uh, I have this minister friend of mine. I've been supporting him financially for years. I met him you know, when I was in the military overseas and uh, I want you to just listen to his CD, and if you like it, I want to invite him here to our church to put on a healing conference. And I was like, son, we're Baptists. Have you lost your mind? You're going to have no healing conference. He goes, just listen to the CD. So I was like, cool. So put the CD in my car. I was driving down the road. And the first thing the guy said was, when I was in the Army in Germany, I was like, that's weird. I was in the Army in Germany. I'm driving down the road. And he's just like, you know, I'd asked my wife to marry me, but she said no, and then I had to go to Germany alone. I'm like, well, that's weird, because I asked my wife to marry me right before I went to Germany, but she said no, and I had to go alone. Like, well, and I was working, and then I, you know, I was trying to kind of get into ministry, but I couldn't find my way, and I was like, well, that's just like, he's telling my story. I'm just driving out the road. I'm like, really? Everything this guy said was like my testimony, and you guys have heard me talk about the two guys with cancer, the one guy that got healed right there in our church plant, and then shortly after, at first Baptist Chula Vista, the kid called up, and we prayed for his dad, and he died the next day, and I, I was lost, and God was like, I healed them both. Do you remember that story? He had, like, the exact same story, different place, different time. I mean, this, God had used this little CD to get my attention, so I called the guy on the phone. I'm like, hey, I'll be honest with you. This guy, Eric, wants us to have you over, but I'm a little nervous because we don't do stuff like that, but your story is just like my story, and so there could be some overlap. Let's just be friends. Let's talk, and he was real faithful. We corresponded, and We talked for a long time, and over time, God just made it very clear to me that it was his idea, not Eric's. And we had this guy come in, and he did like two or three nights of healing ministry (laughs) at a Southern Baptist church. It was really fun. And we had a lot of people come, probably 40, 50, like half of our adults came every night. And his most profound, and I've never heard like a full, you know, what I call the jacket-swinging charismatics, you know what I'm talking about? Those guys, I've never heard any of the TV guys say this. So this is the only guy, this guy Wayne, was the only guy I've ever heard say this, and I can't prove this to you scripturally, but it's been just laying on my heart now for years. He said that God really wants to heal people, but that uh, a couple things that we don't think about that are just right out of scripture was that most of the time, God was responding to people that cried out to him. Now, he did occasionally pick people to heal, but think about most of the stories. The friends let the guy down through the roof, you know, they're walking through a crowd, and one guy cries out, you know, son of David. Uh, so it's not always, but just sort of a majority of the time, Jesus is responding to people who cried out to him. And he said, one of the reasons that Baptists don't see a lot of healings is because Baptists aren't taught to cry out to God. And I was like, now that is true. And maybe we should as just God's people, regardless of labels or denominations, which, by the way, don't mean anything in eternity. Right? To me, Baptists is just how we collect money for missionaries. That's it. There's nothing special about us. You either believe in Jesus or you don't. There's either sheep or goats. You're either going to go to heaven or hell. And when you get to heaven, if you get to heaven, uh, I think it would be really good for us to have learned and practiced what it means to cry out to God. What does that mean to cry out to God? I think it comes from a broken place. And maybe our problem is that we're so proud that we, we just don't want to go before God broken. But I was really humbled by this teaching. And he said the other thing is, is that we're subtly taught to doubt that the word of God applies to us. Man, when he said that, I was like, oh, this guy has money. Why? Because I'm that guy. I'm always like, well, of course I believe in healing for you. But if I had a big lump of cancer in my neck, even though I've prayed for someone and just had it disappear, I'm not sure God would do that for me. Why? 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 Yeah, but thank you. And I think that's a collective idea in our world. That we're not taught what it means to be adopted children of God. To be princes and princesses of the king of the universe. To be co-heirs with Christ. And so here's the third question. Sick or healed? Do you believe that God wants you to be sick all the time? Or do you believe? And I'm not saying it's some insane televised way where you have to like do circus performances to get God's attention. I mean just in your quiet Heart of hearts before God. Do you believe that the word of God applies to you? Because if you don't, that doubt is the power. And this this was Wayne's profound point. He said, in most evangelical churches, there's almost never any healing because we are saturated with personal doubt. And if there's anything I could encourage you to do, if there's a ministry that Drew has in my life, if there's a ministry that Nate and Robert have in my life, is that when we get together, that iron sharpening iron, even if it isn't verbally spoken, the intent of it is that we have to stop doubting God and believe that the good news is for us. Man, I tell you right now, that is hard. And I would imagine if it's hard for me, it's probably hard for most of you. So what what are we saying here? That God is calling us down a difficult path. It is a narrow path road I used to always tell my college kids we had about 200 college kids on Thursday nights for a long time man it was good times and uh, I preached every other week this guy Justin preached every other week and I would always say if you are at a fork in the road and there's a beautiful sunset with a beach and there's a big old wide path going to some place that appeals to you And then there's like a little craggy, dangerous-looking path with rocks and goats and stuff on it. Jesus is down that path. You're never going to meet Jesus down the flat, sandy road. Jesus is on the hard road. You want to eliminate the doubt in your life and start to learn what it means to really walk by faith? You want to grow in your walk with Christ? Here's a decision to make. When you come to a fork in the road, start to practice taking the hard road. And I've literally had adult Christians come up to me after I've said that and say, how dare you? Are you saying Jesus doesn't have good things for us? Are you saying that there's no sunsets and beaches for Christians? I was like, wow, you did not understand the metaphor. (laughs) It's an analogy of real decisions in our life. It's not about sand and sunshine. It's about the real hard decisions in our life. And what I'm saying to you is, is that the path that Jesus lives on is never the easier path. And even after I explained it again and again, there are Christians who are just so programmed to think that, like, you know, they believe the media more than the Bible. They believe in Christian publishing more than the eternal Word of God. God calls us to suffer. He says that we will understand what it means to have fellowship with Him through suffering. And so if we teach people to just avoid suffering at all costs... We're not discipling people to constantly repent and believe. The Bible doesn't tell us to avoid storms. What he says is believe that Jesus can speak to your storm. Amen. So do you believe that God wants you to just be sick? Physically sick? Spiritually sick? Mentally sick? Or do you believe that God wants to heal you? Can you chase the doubt out for just a minute of prayer? And cry out to God and say, I believe in the cross. I believe that your wounds are medicinal for me. I pray that for you. Is it self or sacrifice for you? Is it war or peace in your heart? Will you be sick or will you be healed? And the last proponent of the cross today I want to cover is in the letter to the church at Corinth. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Now, obviously, I saved the ultimate question for last because I believe there are people in here today with this many people, not everyone in here has had a genuine born-again relationship experience with Jesus. And I know that some of you have had religious spasms or maybe you've prayed with some preacher or you've, you know, you've had an emotional moment and cried at a, at a service and you thought, oh, I've been inoculated. You know, I'm, I'm saved because I had this experience, these emotions. Well, let me just explain something to you. If your life didn't change then you did not have Jesus come into your heart. If Jesus came into your heart, then your life changed. It may not have been bells from heaven or lightning from the sky. But if you don't have a testimony of how God has changed your life, then your experience may need a redo. And I don't mean saved again. One of the things that kills me is when I ask someone for their testimony, they're like, well, I was first saved at 11. Then I got saved again at 19, and then my wife drug me into church at 42, and I've been saved a third time. There's no such thing. If you've ever been born again, or I like the analogy of adopted, if God has ever stamped your adoption papers and put his name on you, and Jesus has ever lived in your heart, he don't leave. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18 says this, For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. To the people who've just chosen the world. Just cannot pry themselves off the broad way. Just lie to themselves and say there is no God and thereby no accountability. Then then the cross is just utter foolishness. I talk about this almost every day on Facebook with my unsaved friends. You know, they'll put up something, some scientist in his brilliant quote about evolution, and I'll type in there, evolution is just a religion, and all, it's state-funded, because all of the professors at the state universities are paid by the state, and what they're doing is preaching something that they can't prove. Thereby, it's faith. They are preaching another religion. And, of course, this makes them crazy, and I'm amazed I have any friends left. The message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Power of salvation, the power of light, the power of freedom, the power of life, the power of truth, the power of community, the power of mission. It's the power of a relationship with the giver and creator of all power. And so the last question for you today is this, life or death? And I don't mean in the sense of when your mortal body stops breathing for the last moment. I mean, for all eternity, have you chosen life in Christ Jesus or have you chosen death? The interesting thing that Jesus says is that when when the day comes for all of those people on the Broadway, all the goats to be condemned to fire forever, what he says is that their own words will stand to condemn them. In Romans 1, it says, no man will stand before God with any excuse because even the, the nature around us, the creation, cries out, That there's a creator, and that there's accountability, and that there's a personal glory for God. No one will stand before God and say, well, I just had no clue. In Psalms it says that the man who says in his heart there is no God is a liar. What does that mean? We're surrounded by people who lie all the time. They say, well, there's no God. I know there's no God. There is no God. Why do people lie about that to themselves and to other people? Well, because they don't want the accountability that comes from a personal God. If we're descended from monkeys, then who are we accountable to? Monkeys. But we're children made in the image of God, and we are going to account to God. And because of the cross, the accounting is made real easy. Let me give it to you business guys like this. It's a deal. Jesus says, I'll pay for everything, every crime, every misdemeanor, every sin, every word of gossip, every slander, every vulgar look, Every word you've ever said that was untrue. Everything you've stolen. Every time you've worshipped an idol. Jesus hanging on the cross says, I will pay your bill and I'll pay it all and I'll pay it forever. <clears throat> but take it or don't take it. Here's the other thing. And this is really intense. He doesn't want to pay half the bill. Most of us macho guys, you know, we want to carry our you know, a little swagger. We're all macho. And We say, I got a deal for you, Jesus. Big guy upstairs. Buddy. You pay for half and I'll pay for half. And he says, no. These nails in my hands, these nails in my feet, this crown on my head, when that spear pierced through and separated the blood from the water and it all poured out for my Father's glory, I will not share this with you. I will either pay for your life eternal or you will pay for your crimes and death for eternity. That is a big border. And we are all born in the kingdom of darkness and no one is kicked or dragged or forced into the kingdom of light. You're beckoned, you're called, you're requested, but you will not be forced. So let me ask you this as we pray. Um, we're going to close our eyes, and I'm just going to ask you to be honest with yourself. But let me know if I can pray for you that this would be a day where you would say, yes, I actually do want to, by faith, accept what Jesus did on the cross fully for my sins. So would you bow your heads and close your eyes? I really don't want folks looking around, because I, I just know that some people may be so shy and private that if they thought folks were kind of nose and into this personal time they may not want to share and i I really i'm not going to like chase you out the door and invite myself over to your house or anything crazy i just want to know if i can pray for you would you say right now yes pastor howard pray for me because i believe that i need to make that a priority i need to repent and believe in jesus for my salvation today would you just slip your hand up so i can see your hand amen anyone else amen 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 praise god anyone else before we pray Church, let's pray for these folks who've been honest and humble. And Lord, we ask right now that your spirit would move on the hearts of the people who you are dealing with right now for your glory and for their salvation. And for those people who've raised their hand, Lord, I'm so grateful that you are still active and alive and calling people into your kingdom. And we just pray that right now they would just in their hearts quietly cry out to you and say, Father in heaven, Father in heaven, I know that I've sinned. If you raised your hand, would you say that? Would you say, Father, I know I've sinned, and I believe Jesus died on the cross to pay for my sin, that his blood was shed for me. I accept him into my heart as as my master. He can be the boss now. I will live for you. I will read your word. I will pray, and I will tell people about this little interaction. I believe that you sent your son to die on the cross for my sin. If you prayed that prayer, would you please make sure you tell one of the Guys from the band, or one of the leaders here in the church, and and just let us talk to you about maybe what some of the next steps would be for your for your growth and your edification. And Lord, while we're praying right now, we just want to lift up this idea of coming together as a family for communion. As we come to your table to receive the the bread and the and the fruit of the vine, Lord, we just pray that this will be a, really a time of great worship again. Our hearts would cry out to you that we would. Take this very seriously and soberly. Your word warns us not to take communion if we're not walking with you, if we're out of the light, if we're not reconciled with some other brother or sister. Lord, I pray that people would resist doing this out of some habit or fad. But for those that are in tune with your spirit and walking with you right now, those who, Lord, are willing to forgive and, and move on, those who would even repent in their seats right now and just quietly say, God, I give in, have your way with me, that all of those in fellowship with you would come forward today, and, and and serve themselves with the bread and dip it in the wine, and and that that this will be a great time of your spirit um, having lordship over this church. And we pray this in Jesus' name, and all God's children said, Amen.